Welcome to Word for Wordcast, short stories performed with great theatricality. Welcome back to Word for Wordcast and part two of E.M. Forster's The Machine Stops. In part one, we were shown a future where humans have retreated underground, each person living in their own hive-like cell. Here, every need is attended to by the machine. Artificial light has replaced the sun, and the inhabitants have devolved into pale, larva-like creatures. Vashti spends her days exchanging ideas in the form of lectures delivered in a Zoom-like meeting with thousands of her followers. Her son Kuno calls, begging her to travel to his home on the other side of the world. He has something very important to tell her, and he must do it in person. Vashti suffers a harrowing journey by airship above the Earth's surface, arriving at Kuno's cell. To maximize your experience, we recommend listening with headphones or good stereo speakers. And after you listen, please go to zspace.org pod and make a donation. Your help will ensure we can continue to bring you more episodes of Word for Wordcast. Here now is part two of The Machine Stops. The Machine Stops by E.M. Forster. Two, the mending apparatus. By a vestibule, by a lift, by a tubular railway, by a platform, by a sliding door, by reversing all the steps of her departure, did Vashti arrive at her son's room, which exactly resembled her own. She might well declare that the visit was superfluous. The buttons, the knobs, the reading desk with a book, the temperature, the atmosphere, the illumination, all were exactly the same. And if Kuno himself, flesh of her flesh, stood close behind her at last, what profit was there in that? She was too well-bred to shake him by the hand. Averting her eyes, she spoke as follows. Here I am. I have had the most terrible journey and greatly retarded the development of my soul. It is not worth it, Kuno. It is not worth it. My time is too precious. The sunlight almost touched me, and I have met with the rudest people. I can only stop a few minutes, say what you want to say, and then I must return. I have been threatened with homelessness, said Kuno. She looked at him now. I have been threatened with homelessness, and I could not tell you such a thing through the machine. Homelessness means death. The victim is exposed to the air, which kills him. I have been outside since I spoke to you last. The tremendous thing has happened, and they have discovered me. But why shouldn't you go outside, she exclaimed. It is perfectly legal, perfectly mechanical, to visit the surface of the earth. I have lately been to a lecture on the sea. There is no objection to that. One simply summons a respirator and gets an egression permit. It is not the kind of thing that spiritually minded people do, and I begged you not to do it. But there is no legal objection to it. I did not get an egression permit. Then how did you get out? I found out a way of my own. The phrase conveyed no meaning to her, and he had to repeat it. 
a way of your own, she whispered. But that would be wrong. Why? The question shocked her beyond measure. You are beginning to worship the machine, he said coldly. You think it irreligious of me to have found out a way of my own. It was just what the committee thought when they threatened me with homelessness. At this she grew angry. I worship nothing, she cried. I am most advanced. I don't think you irreligious, for there is no such thing as religion left. All the fear and the superstition that existed once have been destroyed by the machine. I only meant that to find out a way of your own was... Besides, there is no new way out. So it is always supposed. Except through the vomitories for which one must have an egression permit, it is impossible to get out. The book says so. Well, the book's wrong, for I have been out on my feet. Huno was possessed of a certain physical strength. By these days, it was a demerit to be muscular. Each infant was examined at birth, and all who promised undue strength were destroyed. Humanitarians may protest, but it would have been no true kindness to let an athlete live. He would never have been happy in that state of life to which the machine had called him. He would have yearned for trees to climb, rivers to bathe in, meadows and hills against which he might measure his body. Man must be adapted to his surroundings, must he not? In the dawn of the world, our weekly must be exposed on Mount Tigetus. In its twilight, our strong will suffer euthanasia, that the machine may progress, that the machine may progress. That the machine may progress eternally. You know that we have lost the sense of space. We say space is annihilated, but we have annihilated not space, but the sense thereof. We have lost a part of ourselves. I determined to recover it, and I began by walking up and down the platform of the railway outside my room, up and down, until I was tired, and so did recapture the meaning of near and far. Near is a place to which I can get quickly on my feet, not a place to which the train or the airship will take me quickly. Far is a place to which I cannot get quickly on my feet. The vomitory is far, though I could be there in 38 seconds by summoning the train. Man is the measure. That was my first lesson. Man's feet are the measure for distance. His hands are the measure for ownership. His body is the measure for all that is lovable and desirable and strong. Then I went further. It was then that I called to you for the first time and you would not come. This city, as you know, is built deep beneath the surface of the earth with only the vomitories protruding. Having paced the platform outside my own room, I took the lift to the next platform and paced that also, and so with each in turn until I came to the topmost, above which begins the earth. All the platforms were exactly alike, and all that I gained by visiting them was to develop my sense of space and my muscles. I think I should have been content with this. It is not a little thing. But as I walked and brooded, it occurred to me that our cities had been built in the days when men still breathed the outer air, and that there had been ventilation shafts for the workmen. I could think of nothing but these ventilation shafts.
Had they been destroyed by all the food tubes and medicine tubes and music tubes that the machine had evolved lately? Or did traces of them remain? One thing was certain. If I came upon them anywhere, it would be in the railway tunnels of the topmost story. Everywhere else, all space was accounted for. I am telling my story quickly, but don't think that I was not a coward or that your answers never depressed me. It is not the proper thing. It is not mechanical. It is not decent to walk along a railway tunnel. I did not fear that I might tread upon a live rail and be killed. I feared something far more intangible. Doing what was not contemplated by the machine. Then I said to myself, Man is the measure. And I went. And after many visits, I found an opening. The tunnels, of course, were lighted. Everything is light, artificial light. Darkness is the exception. So when I saw a black gap in the tiles, I knew that it was an exception and rejoiced. I put in my arm. I could put in no more at first and waved it round and round in ecstasy. I loosened another tile and put in my head and shouted into the darkness, I am coming, I shall do it yet. And my voice reverberated down endless passages. I seemed to hear the spirits of those dead workmen who had returned each evening to the starlight and to their wives and all the generations who had lived in the open air called back to me, you will do it yet. You are coming. He paused, and absurd as he was, his last words moved her, for Kuno had lately asked to be a father. And his request had been refused by the committee. His was not a type that the machine desired to hand on. Then a train passed. It brushed by me, but I thrust my head and arms into the hole. I had done enough for one day, so I crawled back to the platform, went down in the lift, and summoned my bed. <sighs> what dreams! And again I called you, and again you refused. She shook her head and said, Don't. Don't talk of these terrible things. You make me miserable. You are throwing civilization away. But I had got back the sense of space, and a man cannot rest then. I determined to get in at the hole and climb the shaft. And so, I exercised my arms. Day after day, I went through ridiculous movements until my flesh ached and I could hang by my hands and hold the pillow of my bed outstretched for many minutes. Then I summoned a respirator and started. It was easy at first. The mortar had somehow rotted, and I soon pushed some more tiles in and clambered after them into the darkness, and the spirits of the dead comforted me. I don't know what I mean by that. I just say what I felt. I felt, for the first time, that a protest had been lodged against corruption, and that even as the dead were comforting me, so I was comforting the unborn. I felt that humanity existed, and that it existed without clothes. How can I possibly explain this? 
It was naked. Humanity seemed naked, and all these tubes and buttons and machineries neither came into the world with us, nor will they follow us out, nor do they matter supremely while we are here. Had I been strong, I would have torn off every garment I had and gone into the outer air unswaddled. But this is not for me, nor perhaps for my generation. I climbed with my respirator and my hygienic clothes and my dietetic tabloids. Better thus than not at all. There was a ladder, made of some primeval metal. The light from the railway fell upon its lowest rungs, and I saw that it led straight upwards out of the rubble at the bottom of the shaft. Perhaps our ancestors ran up and down it a dozen times daily in their building. As I climbed, the rough edges cut through my gloves so that my hands bled. The light helped me for a little, and then came darkness, and... Worse still, silence, which pierced my ears like a sword. The machine hums. Did you know that? Its hum penetrates our blood and may even guide our thoughts. Who knows? I was getting beyond its power. Then I thought... This silence means that I am doing something wrong. But I heard voices in the silence, and again they strengthened me. <laughs> he laughed. I had need of them. The next moment, I cracked my head against something. She sighed. I had reached one of those pneumatic stoppers that defend us from the outer air. You may have noticed them on the airship. Pitch dark, my feet on the rungs of an invisible ladder, my hands cut. I cannot explain how I lived through this part, but the voices still comforted me, and I felt for fastenings. The stopper, I suppose, was about eight feet across. I passed my hand over it as far as I could reach. It was perfectly smooth. I felt it almost to the center. Not quite to the center, for my arm was too short. Then the voice said, Jump. It is worth it. There may be a handle in the center, and you may catch hold of it, and so come to us your own way. And if there is no handle, so that you may fall and are dashed to pieces, it is still worth it. You will still come to us your own way. So I jumped. There was a handle, and... He paused. Tears gathered in his mother's eyes. She knew that he was fated. If he did not die today, he would die tomorrow. There was not room for such a person in the world. And with her pity, disgust mingled. She was ashamed of having borne such a son. She, who had always been so respectable and so full of ideas. Was he really the little boy to whom she had taught the use of his stops and buttons? And to whom she had given his first lesson in the book? The very hair that disfigured his lip showed that he was reverting to some savage type. On atavism, the machine can have no mercy. There was a handle, and I did catch it. I hung, tranced over the darkness, and heard the hum of these workings as the last whisper in a dying dream. All the things I had cared about and all the people I had spoken to through tubes appeared infinitely little. 
Meanwhile, the handle revolved. My weight had set something in motion, and I span slowly, and then... I cannot describe it. I was lying with my face to the sunshine. Blood poured from my nose and ears, and I heard a tremendous roaring. The stopper, with me clinging to it, had simply been blown out of the earth, and the air that we make down here was escaping through the vent into the air above. It burst up like a fountain. I crawled back to it, for the upper air hurts, and, as it were, I took great sips from the edge. My respirator had flown goodness knows where. My clothes were torn. I just lay with my lips close to the hole, and I sipped until the bleeding stopped. You can imagine nothing so curious. This hollow in the grass, I will speak of it in a minute. The sun shining into it, not brilliantly, but through marbled clouds. The peace, the nonchalance, the sense of space, and brushing my cheek the roaring fountain of our artificial air. Soon I spied my respirator, bobbing up and down in the current high above my head, and higher still were many airships. But no one ever looks out of airships, and in any case they could not have picked me up. There I was, stranded. The sun shone a little way down the shaft, and revealed the topmost rung of the ladder, but it was hopeless trying to reach it. I should have either been tossed up again by the escape, or else have fallen in and died. I could only lie on the grass, sipping and sipping, and from time to time, glancing around me. I knew that I was in Wessex, for I had taken care to go to a lecture on the subject before starting. Wessex lies above the room in which we are talking now. It was once an important state. Its kings held all the southern coast from the Andredswald to Cornwall, while the Wonsdyke protected them on the north, running over the high ground. The lecturer was only concerned with the rise of Wessex, so I do not know how long it remained an international power, nor would the knowledge have assisted me. To tell the truth, I could do nothing but laugh during this part. There was I, with a pneumatic stopper by my side and a respirator bobbing over my head, imprisoned, all three of us, in a grass-grown hollow that was edged with fern. Then he grew grave again. Lucky for me that it was a hollow. For the air began to fall back into it and to fill it as water fills a bowl. I could crawl about. Presently, I stood. I breathed a mixture in which the air that hurts predominated whenever I tried to climb the sides. This was not so bad. I had not lost my tabloid and remained ridiculously cheerful, and as for the machine, I forgot about it altogether. My one aim now was to get to the top where the ferns were, and to view whatever objects lay beyond. I rushed the slope. The new air was still too bitter for me, and I came rolling back after a momentary vision of something gray. The sun grew very feeble, and I remembered that he was in Scorpio. I had been to a lecture on that, too. 
If the sun is in Scorpio and you are in Wessex, it means that you must be as quick as you can or it will get too dark. This is the first bit of useful information I have ever got from a lecture, and I expect it will be the last. It made me try frantically to breathe the new air and to advance as far as I dared out of my pond. The hollow filled so slowly. At times I thought that the fountain played with less vigor. My respirator seemed to dance nearer the earth. The roar was decreasing. He broke off. I don't think this is interesting you. The rest will interest you even less. There are no ideas in it. And I wish I had not troubled you to come. We are too different, Mother. She told him to continue. It was evening before I climbed the bank. The sun had very nearly slipped out of the sky by this time, and I could not get a good view. You, who have just crossed the roof of the world, will not want to hear an account of the little hills that I saw. Low, colorless hills. But to me, they were living, and the turf that covered them was a skin under which their muscles rippled, and I felt that those hills had called with incalculable force to men in the past, and that men had loved them. Now they sleep, perhaps forever. They commune with humanity in dreams. Happy the man, happy the woman who awakes the hills of Wessex. For though they sleep, they will never die. His voice rose passionately. Cannot you see, cannot all you lecturers see, that it is we that are dying, and that down here the only thing that really lives is the machine? We created the machine to do our will, but we cannot make it do our will now. It has robbed us of the sense of space and of the sense of touch. It has blurred every human relation and narrowed down love to a carnal act. It has paralyzed our bodies and our wills, and now it compels us to worship it. The machine develops, but not on our lines. The machine proceeds, but not to our goal. We only exist as the blood corpuscles that course through its arteries, and if it could work without us, it would let us die. Oh, I have no remedy, or at least only one, to tell men again and again that I have seen the hills of Wessex as Alfred saw them when he overthrew the Danes. So the sun set. I forgot to mention that a belt of mist lay between my hill and other hills, and that it was the color of pearl. He broke off for the second time. Go on, his mother said wearily. He shook his head. Go on. Nothing that you say can distress me now. I am hardened. I had meant to tell you the rest, but I cannot. I know that I cannot. Goodbye. Vashti stood irresolute. All her nerves were tingling with his blasphemies. But she was also inquisitive. This is unfair, she complained. You have called me across the world to hear your story, and hear it I will. Tell me, as briefly as possible, for this is a disastrous waste of time. Tell me how you return to civilization. Oh, that, he said, starting. You would like to hear about civilization? Certainly. Had I got to where my respirator fell down? No, 
but I understand everything now. You put on your respirator and managed to walk along the surface of the earth to a vomitory, and there your conduct was reported to the Central Committee. By no means. He passed his hand over his forehead, as if dispelling some strong impression. Then, resuming his narrative, he warmed to it again. My respirator fell about sunset. I had mentioned that the fountain seemed feebler, had I not? Yes. About sunset, it let the respirator fall. As I said, I had entirely forgotten about the machine, and I paid no great attention at the time, being occupied with other things. I had my pool of air, into which I could dip when the outer keenness became intolerable, and which would possibly remain for days, provided that no wind sprang up to disperse it. Not until it was too late did I realize what the stoppage of the escape implied. You see, the gap in the tunnel had been mended. The mending apparatus, the mending apparatus was after me. One other warning I had, but I neglected it. The sky at night was clearer than it had been in the day, and the moon, which was about half the sky behind the sun, shone into the dell at moments quite brightly. I was in my usual place, on the boundary between the two atmospheres, when I thought I saw something dark move across the bottom of the dell and vanish into the shaft. In my folly, I ran down. I bent over and listened, and I thought I heard a faint scraping noise in the depths. At this, but it was too late, I took alarm. I determined to put on my respirator and to walk right out of the dell. But my respirator had gone. I knew exactly where it had fallen, between the stopper and the aperture, and I could even feel the mark that it had made in the turf. It had gone, and I realized that something evil was at work, and I had better escape to the other air, and, if I must die, die running towards the cloud that had been the color of a pearl. I never started. Out of the shaft. It is too horrible. A worm. A long white worm had crawled out of the shaft and was gliding over the moonlit grass. I screamed! I did everything that I should not have done. I stamped upon the creature instead of flying from it, and it at once curled around the ankle. Then we fought. The worm let me run all over the dell, but edged up my leg as I ran. Help! I cried. That part is too awful. It belongs to the part that you will never know. Help! I cried. Why can we not suffer in silence? Help! I cried. Then my feet were wound together. I fell. I was dragged away from the deer ferns and the living hills and past the great metal stopper. I can tell you this part. And I thought it might save me again if I caught hold of the handle. It also was enwrapped. It also. Oh, the whole dell was full of the things. They were searching it in all directions. They were denuding it. And the white snouts of others peeped out of the hole, ready if needed. Everything that could be moved they brought. Brushwood, bundles of fern, everything. And down we all went intertwined into hell. The last things that I saw, ere the stopper closed after us, were certain stars, and I felt that a man of my sort lived in the sky, for I did fight 
I fought till the very end, and it was only my head hitting against the ladder that quieted me. I woke up in this room. The worms had vanished. I was surrounded by artificial air, artificial light, artificial peace. And my friends were calling to me down speaking tubes to know whether I had come across any new ideas lately. Here his story ended. Discussion of it was impossible, and Vashti turned to go. It will end in homelessness, she said quietly. I wish it would, retorted Kuno. The machine has been most merciful. I prefer the mercy of God. By that superstitious phrase, do you mean that you could live in the outer air? Yes. Have you ever seen, round the vomitories, the bones of those who were extruded after the Great Rebellion? Yes. They were left where they perished for our edification. A few crawled away, but they perished too. Who can doubt it? And so with the homeless of our own day, the surface of the earth supports life no longer. Indeed. Ferns and a little grass may survive, but all higher forms have perished. Has any airship detected them? No. Has any lecturer dealt with them? No. Then why this obstinacy? Because I have seen them, he exploded. Seen what? Because I have seen her in the twilight. Because she came to my help when I called. Because she, too, was entangled by the worms, and luckier than I, was killed by one of them piercing her throat. He was mad. Vashti departed. Nor in the troubles that followed did she ever see his face again. Thank you for joining us for part two of The Machine Stops. We'd like to remind you that this podcast is powered not only by our machine, but by donations from art lovers like you. Word for Wordcast is free of charge, and we rely on your support to pay our talented artists and technicians. Please donate generously at zspace.org pod. To learn more about E.M. Forrester's relationship with his own mother and his life as a closeted gay man, go to zspace.org pod or stay tuned after the credits for my conversation with Brian Thorstensen, writer and lecturer at Santa Clara University, as we talk of the author and the subversive legacy of queer resistance through art. This week's podcast was directed by Gendel Hernandez and was read by Brian Rivera as the speaker, Susan Harlow as Vashti, David Moore as Kuno, Ryan Tasker as the lecturer, and Carla Gallardo as ensemble. The sound design and original music is by David Armelina and dramaturgy by Delia McDougall. Our sound engineer is Joe Moore, stage manager Tyler Miller, and production manager Colin McNally. 
Our Director of Marketing and Distribution is Andrew Burmester and podcast volunteer Carly Dream Kelbra. I'm your host, Joanne Winter. Be sure and join us next week for the third and final part of The Machine Stops the Homeless. Word for Word is a program of ZSpace. Please like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Joanne Winter, your host for the Word for Word cast. And we have just finished episode two of The Machine Stops by Ian Forster. And we are here today to just talk a little bit about E.M. Forrester. I am here with my dear friend, Brian Thorstenson, who is a writer and an educator. He teaches writing in the theater and dance department at Santa Clara University and is just an all-around fabulous person. And, um, you know, Brian, um, I guess most people know E.M. Forrester from four or five novels that are very romantic and sort of sweeping, you know, human comedy, um, like A Room with a View or Howard's End. Um, they deal a lot with classism and and things like that. But this story is very different, I think, for him, at least my what I know of his writing. You know, it's it's sci-fi, futuristic, yeah. dystopian. Um yeah. and uh but you know, it's interesting that he uses science fiction, which sort of directs you not really to the future, but to to mirror back where you are in your own society. Right. And at that time when he wrote this in 1909, his society was going through the machine age. And and this story seems like a, a an you know, an answer to that or, or you yeah. know. Yeah, yeah. I always think that good science fiction does what this story does, which is it's actually not about the future. It's actually about the present. It's actually about something that takes us into an examination of human interaction and human nature in that particular historical moment. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm a huge science fiction fan. Uh, like I think of Battlestar Galactica as one of those um, things. I that did I not bid. know that. You did not know that. No. I am. Uh, that is one of those kinds of things that makes holds a mirror up to what it, what it means to be human. Yeah. And I think this story does that so beautifully. Uh, mm. What does it mean to be human? And yeah, what gets what what's lost and what's gained. Um, in this world around humanity. Yeah. Yeah. Because really they're sort of getting further and further away from their humanity, it seems. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think uh, one of the things that struck me about the story from the beginning was the way that the body does or doesn't show up in the story. Um, and as I was thinking after we talked yesterday, Joanne, I was thinking again about these key moments in the story. Like I'm going to use a playwriting term, which you will know, the inciting incident, which is, you know, the thing that sets a story in motion. Mm-hmm. The inciting incident in the story is actually this moment of Kuno saying to his mother, will you come see me in person? Yeah. I want your body in front of me. Yeah. 
and then the, 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 there's this whole section at the beginning with Vashti that is so unembodied. Mm-hmm. And then once Kuno goes up to the surface, that particular section is so embodied. And not to give anything away, because I know there's still an episode to come, but the how the body shows up at the climax of the story. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's, so when I th- started thinking about that, it's like, oh, it's really, it's like, it's the thing that sets the story in motion. It's the thing that is the climax. It's the thing that's the main conflict in the story. Yeah. Uh, so I thought that was really interesting. His his imagery and his language, it's that that description of Kuno discovering his body in space. Yes. In, in a way that they don't need to, they don't have that experience in in the age of the machine, right. uh, in their little cells, you know, uh, and him having, it's almost like he's a baby learning how to walk or something, you know? Yes. Uh, and go ahead. Sorry. And, and, and that he had forgotten what it, what these words near and far meant. Yes. I thought that was so interesting that this idea of spatial relationships had disappeared because of living inside this machine, inside this yeah. honeycomb. And what um, kind of an imagination do you, do you, does it take to, to, un, to imagine that, you know, that Forrester, like, put himself in that place and just described it so beautifully. So beautifully. And, I mean, 1909, it's like the, the machines were happening, but not to the kind of, I mean, this is really such a huge leap, Um yeah. In terms of the idea of machines. Right. Yeah. Like how how his brain must have just been churning, you know, thinking ahead to like what the locomotive is going to lead to. And, you know, like the airship that's described is not right. unlike, um, what do you call it? Dirigible. What's the other word for that? Zeppelin. You know, Zeppelin or whatever. Yeah. Right. You know, right. so that he didn't go too far beyond that, but still the kinds of amenities that they had in there, you know, um, I don't think we're around, but, but yeah, how he just sort of projects himself into the future, so to speak, is pretty amazing. Yeah, Um, it really is. And, and it also, you know, looks at how society, how we are in society and how we uh, behave within society's norms and and how important it is and what happens when you go against the norms of society um you know kuno being faced with as they say homelessness which that in itself is really interesting given where we are today but you know how everybody just sort of falls into this following the machine which goes even further in the third part, right? Um, of just, right. but it's that that battle we were talking about in a previous conversation with Gendel, who directed the story, and Brian, one of the actors, and about how we're this battle between comfort and mm. being cared for by society, mm. and you know, individuality and responsibility. Mm. Mm. It's really. It's really that's fascinating. So, yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah. 
Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. Siri, you go. <laughs> uh, I was just thinking that it's, like, it's not only did he imagine himself into this world of machines, he also imagined the repercussions of it mm-hmm. for human beings, which feels like a whole nother step past that. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I don't think anybody, I know for myself, like the, I remember the first time I got on the internet or I remember the first time that I used Facebook. I don't think I ever was able to imagine the repercussions of what those actions were. Right. But he does that. In yeah. Here. Yeah. Yeah. You know, here we are today with uh, bots and, and, you know, Russian intervention in our right. elections right. and stuff. And who could have imagined it's stupid Facebook, you know, where you're posting your 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 relationship status and your vacation photos or whatever that it's like taking over everything. And I think too, you know, a a the thing about um Forrester that not a lot of people know is that he was a closeted uh gay man. You yes. know that yeah. And it seems like even though he never really published anything overt about that, that this, you know, that this is sort of expressing that being the other, you know, and having to conform. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because um, my first introduction to Forrester actually was, I'm pretty sure through Morris. Um, because it's one of those books that among queer men has a, what is the word? I, I guess has a, has, has a cachet about it, mm-hmm. um, an importance about it, particularly at the time. You know, when I first came out in 1978, uh, what was available to me was you know, boys in the band and the killing of sister George Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, one, one book called loving someone gay that came out maybe a little bit later than that, but most of the portrayals of queer men at that time were not hopeful. (laughs) They almost always ended up with somebody dead. Yeah. Killed, oh, murdered, brutalized or, yeah. brutalized or something. Yeah. So Morris came along, you know, I, I don't know when I found it, but they sure would publish it, what, in 72? Yeah. So, or like, yeah. Yeah. So to have a book that ends with a gay story that has an actual happy ending and the possibility of a gay relationship moving forward in the world was sort of, it was huge. There was not that much of that around at the time. Yeah. And, so I, remember- and I was just going to say for people who don't know Morris, uh, he wrote, wow, really early. I think when like maybe before, was it in the twenties, but yeah. like, you know, but he never published it. it Right. He got published by Christopher Isherwood after his death. He died in 1970. And um, uh, Forrester stopped publishing in 1924 after 
I forget which novel came out. Uh, it I think it was Passage. The Passage to India. Right. So after that, which was like his most acclaimed novel, he just stopped publishing novels. He wrote essays and book reviews. And then his friends tried to convince him to to publish this novel, but he was like, no, I don't think that's a good idea. And it's about two men who meet at what, Oxford? Or in college in, in college. Britain. Yes. In like what? I don't know. Oxford or Cambridge. I can't remember. Cambridge, yeah. Maybe yes. Cambridge. Um, and you know, early in the 20th century, if not earlier than yes. that. And and yeah, he imagined a happy ending for this one young man who was rebuffed by his first lover and then finally finds like this idyllic love of his life and they go off like into the sunset kind of, you know, they live do. in nature. Um, that's so remarkable that so, given, so remar yeah. Yeah, given so his life. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. I'm getting excited. I know. Um, no. Yeah, given his life. And also the other thing about that book is it's two men from two different classes. Oh, yeah. Which for Forster, which seems like, I mean, he explores that so much in a lot of his books, but that he does that in this gay relationship, that this is a thing that can transcend class. Wow. That's sort Especially of huge. In Britain, which is. In Britain. Yeah. 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 Like yeah. Classism was, was huge. Yeah. Especially then and. But I, yeah, I hadn't known that about Morris that, um, I've only seen the movie. I hadn't read the book. <laughs> so, and, but then you said that and I was like, that's right. It does have a happy ending. And then we were, we're sort of realizing that a lot of his work kind of does have that's even this story oh. kind of a veiled, I don't want to give anything away, but I wouldn't say happy ending, but there is some hope there. Yeah, I think I think he leaves us at the the end of this with this kind of moment of possibility, not with the people that we've been spending time with in the story, but outside yeah. of that. Yeah, hopefully that's a little teaser for you to listen to the yeah. next part of the, the podcast. Because we need some hope right now. <laughs> we do, we do. It's fascinating that the word homelessness in this story equates with death. And, you know, that's of course, because of the environmental destruction that they believe that the surface of the earth is uninhabitable. Right. But it's also that thing of like, don't break the rules. Don't break the rules. Um, or you'll be homeless, but home is this weird little cell, you know? Right. Um, and that idea of direct experience being poo-pooed, you know? Yes. Direct experience is not important. It's what I think about what the last person who talked about this thought about the person before them and the person before them. Before you know? that. Before yeah. Yeah. That, 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 and that feels so connected to what's going on with this now. It's not, it's not, it's about information and not about ideas and this whole idea. Yeah. Talk about that some more. Well, I was fascinated in this story when they got to that point where, well, there's two, th uh, there's two things in my head. One, that the very first conversation between Vashti and Kuno, when sh um, she says, I don't want to go on an airship because I never get any ideas from looking at the sky. 
<laughs> looking at the earth. And he says, that's where I get all of my ideas. So we have these two characters, different relationship to the planet. And then at the end of this, towards the end of the story, when they're talking about it was, it's not first ideas that are, are good. It's actually second or third or fourth ideas. So if you can find somebody who has an opinion about the French Revolution based on an opinion that somebody else had on the French Revolution, based on an opinion that somebody else had on the French Revolution, right. then that's the thing that you should listen to. Which as an educator, <laughs> I that just uh, my it made my skin crawl. Right. Because that feels one it's not at all critical thinking right because you're not actually taking in three or four or five or six or seven different perspectives and juxtaposing them or putting them in dialogue right you're saying something farthest away from the experience and then filtered through a bunch of other people is the thing that is the truth. Right. The thing that is the truth, right? Which is a little bit like, uh, I don't know, it's like a Facebook post that, it, you know, somebody exactly. posts something, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I heard, did you read, did you see the thing that right. so-and-so posted, reposted? Reposted. Retweeted. Right. <laughs> like even yeah. just that, that simple thing that shows up on Facebook every once in a while about, oh, you should do this to change um, the logarithm on your f Facebook posts so different things show up. Like I have no idea if that's real or not, but yeah. it shows up all the time. Yeah. It's fascinating. It's, yeah. yeah. Now I, I saw this, I think I told you when we talked before this uh, documentary on Netflix called The Social Dilemma. Yes. And it's about how social media is kind of taking over everything. And it's, oh my God, everyone needs to watch this because it's it's both terrifying, but also so fascinating. And there's all of these computer experts, you know, people who write this stuff and, you know, I mean, create the technology, you know, and they talk about artificial intelligence, like on Facebook and things like that, social media, how it takes in what you like, what you click on and read and, you know, and, and like and stuff. And then it, it, you know, it sort of, um, you know, it takes that in and then spews back at you more of the same. So after a while, you're just receiving things that you already agree with, you know, and, and like our news is like that. We don't all watch the same news program anymore. We all watch the news program that will give us the information that, right. or the opinions that we agree with, you know? Right. Right. Um, and, and it, it just, it, it took it, it, you know, they, they ask all of these different, um, computer scientists, like, you know, what do you think is, if we don't deal with this, what do you, because it's not, they talk about how it's not regulated at all, right? you know? Um, and they talk about, you know, what do you think will happen? And this one guy just goes, civil war, which <laughs> was chilling to me because I actually have been thinking about that with the division in our country, right? you know, how we don't talk to each other. We don't talk to people who have different ideas. We yell at each, each other or we unfriend or whatever, you know, uh, 
I, I have been thinking that it feels like we're heading in that direction to have somebody like that just say it was like, oh my God, you know? Yeah. There's a similar documentary, I think it was maybe Frontline, about Facebook. Yeah. Did you, I don't know if you watched that one. It was a two-part two part thing. And one of the people that they, that they interviewed, I'm pretty sure it was somebody from Minamar mm. who had actually gone to Facebook and said, you need to do something about Facebook because it's actually undermining our democracy. Yes, I heard that. I didn't see the do- democracy. And, and this, they're not the only country that had gone to Facebook headquarters and said, gone to the headquarters and said, the things that are happening on Facebook are undermining our democracy. Wow. And they didn't, of course, do anything about it. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, all, and to go back to the story, you know, he, he sort of is predicting that. Oh, you know, he is. Oh, just, I, I, I reread that first. I was, I was looking for passages that sort of showed the difference between the sort of the, the embodied and unembodied. And I was looking at that very first section where she gets off the hologram call with Kuno and then everything starts beeping yeah. and it goes into this description of, of the buttons that bring this and the buttons that bring that and the buttons that bring this. And uh, it yeah. feels so much like what's happening now. I think even doubly because we're now doing so much of this where we're online, our lives are online in some way. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and we're constantly being bombarded with stuff. Um, I just want to go back to this idea of outsider and mm. class division and, um, and, and sort of the um, Forster as a, a closeted gay writer right. um, having been very much influenced by what happened to Oscar Wilde like that. He lived in a time we have to remind ourselves, especially for younger readers and listeners that it was criminal and, you know, to be, to be homosexual. Right. Like you would get locked up. Right. And I mean, it's not that we're that far away from that, you know, people are still, you know, beaten up and um, treated horribly. Uh, But, you know, it, it was so, so much more extreme. You didn't see gay characters in literature or on the stage or, right. or anything like that. Um, and so just thinking about what kind of an effect that must have had on him to the point where, you know, he, like we said, he stopped publishing in 1924 and Four. he lived till 1970. And, and then he kept writing he was writing all these stories, um, uh, but he never published them. And they were largely, I think, I may be wrong about this, but I think they were largely science fiction and fantasy. And then he became later on friends with, you know, people like Christopher Isherwood and who were uh, pretty much out. Out, right? yeah. And as, and as artists as well as as humans. Um, and they would say to him, you need to publish this stuff. And he was like, nope, nope, don't think that's a good idea. And but I just find that that's so interesting that he wrote all these stories and went into this fantasy and sci-fi. 
I mean, will you talk about that a little bit as a writer? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's a, there's a couple of things that strike me about it. One, you know, so much of Santa's fantasy and sci-fi is about world building. So it seems in some ways he was building a world where he could express some things that he couldn't express in the in the rest of his fiction. I mean, he, he talks about stopping writing uh, because she'll never write another novel after it. This is pa- a passage to India. My patience with ordinary people has given out, but I shall go on writing. I don't feel any decline in my powers. It was not that he could write anymore. It was not. It was that he could not write about a subject that he could no longer connect to. So it seemed like he'd gotten to this point where the straight world that he had been writing about in these ways, um, he couldn't connect to that anymore. And so didn't want to write about that. That was interesting to me. So writing into this space um, where he's building the world. There's also something about him that I was thinking about in terms of uh, this kind of continuum of queer artists. You know, Wild is sort of this demarcation point. We didn't really have the word homosexual until that point. Mm. Um, uh, and even though he didn't write blatantly out characters. His plays are so gay. I mean, <laughs> you know, they're just so gay. And then there's, of course, De Profundis, which is so important in queer literature. And then the, and then, f- then we get Forrester, who to me l- operates in a little bit of this kind of liminal space between this moment where Wilde, who is so successful, hugely successful, hugely, hugely successful um, between him and Isherwood and Isherwood and, and Auden, I think about mm. them, who go to Berlin right before the Nazis come to power in the late 20s when Berlin is this queer capital, of, you know, streets yeah. with 50, 50 lesbian bars and, uh, you know, this gigantic oh. institute of sex by Magnus Searchfield. Um, that what really informed Forrester's idea of queerness was seeing Oscar Wilde be put in prison and that in some way that never left him. Well, gosh, thanks, Brian. This has been really terrific. I love talking with you about anything, but especially about art and writing. And Thank you so much for having me. So happy to do this. Of course. And I just want to say to our audience, tune in for the third and final part of The Machine Stops next week. Thanks. 